On this episode, I'm joined by Daniel Gale of the Toronto Star. We talked about Daniel's Raptors fandom, how he deals with the intersection of sports and politics, what covering Rob Ford was like, and what covering Donald Trump is like now, and why the truth is so important to him. Hi everyone, welcome back to At Large. I'm your host, Alex Wong. On today's show, I'm joined by Daniel Dale, the Toronto Star's Washington Bureau Chief. He covers Donald Trump's administration and other stories in the United States. Daniel previously spent four years as a Toronto City Hall reporter and bureau chief covering Mayor Rob Ford's administration from start to finish. Daniel, welcome to the show. That's quite a resume. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been quite a, what is it, eight? Yeah, it's been quite an eight years now. <laughs> when you got into uh, writing and covering politics, could you imagine that this would be the eight years of your career? No, uh, definitely not. I mean, we kind of knew the Ford era would be interesting, which is why I was sent to City Hall in the first place. They wanted to beef up the bureau because they knew that he would make news. Um, But we didn't know there would be a crack scandal. And then when I left City Hall, I thought, even though I was going to the U.S., which is always a strange and unusual place, I thought it would be more normal. I thought I'd I'd never have anything like the, the Ford story. And then six months into my time here, uh, Trump launched his campaign. So it's been much wilder than I expected. So you're located in the U.S. now, is that correct? Yeah, based in Washington. Yeah. What's that adjustment been like for you, just personally? Um, I mean, it's been it's been different. Like, you know, every it, this is a big city, it's cosmopolitan, you know, there's every food option, there's lots of culture and sports, and so it has similarities to Toronto, but it's different. Um you know, just the the politics are different. Um, there are people here from all around the country with different political views. You know, you meet a lot of, uh, for example, social conservatives, uh, Christian conservatives, um, which we have, you know, we have in Canada, of course, but um, fewer of them. So the influence of religion is bigger here. Um, gun culture, of course, is bigger here. Even things like college, like people's attachment to their college uh, sports teams. You know, like I went to York uh, where the, you know, like 400 people or something, we go to the basketball games. So things, yeah, things are just, just different. That is the one thing that is really different between us and Canada, the allegiance to the alma maters and the college teams really don't have that in Canada. No, no. Yeah. I try to explain to people, like you'd never see someone walk around with a a York university (laughs) hoodie or something like 10 years after they graduate from, from York, uh, but people here, they play in like sports teams with a fellow alumni from their colleges. They're still attached to their like fraternity brothers and sorority mm-hmm. sisters. And the sports stuff, yeah, they're, that's like a for life kind of thing. So it's it's really different from Canada. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get back to your job and, and all of that later on. But I wanted you on too, because aside from all the important work that you do you're also a huge fan of the raptors correct correct so tell me when the whole raptors fandom started for you i started right away like season one i remember the reading the toronto star uh when the raptors got their franchise uh in their early 90s and then i remember opening night uh cheering for damon and then uh, like a lot of people, you know, my fandom really intensified in the, the Vince era. Um, I was a huge Vince fan. I actually made a Vince Carter fan website. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was like my big 
passion for a while and uh, eventually got a cease and desist notice from Vince Carter's people because I was like shamelessly using his, I think the, the URL was like vincecarter15.net uh, <laughs> using a lot of like unauthorized photos and stuff. Um, but yeah, that era, that era was amazing. And then, uh, yeah, they've been, they've been a, a huge part of my life that whole time. Yeah, my favorite thing when I talk to Raptors fans is to talk to them about the anxiety and the emotions that they have about this team, especially with the team being more successful in recent years and raising the expectations. What was the experience like for you last year with the regular season and then the playoffs? Um, it was It was great. I'm like... I think I'm a less de- demanding fan than a lot of fans are. And I think it's very subjective, but like I've never been like uh, a championship or bus kind of fan, um, more like an enjoy the journey kind of fan. And so I still remember like, you know, the Yogi Stewart, uh, like Lamont Murray, Mil Palacio, you, you know, um, half Alarujo days. And so to have a team that's, that's in the elite um, and that at least gives you a, a chance to be competitive in the playoffs, is like I just feel like it's a gift, um, and so I've never been like let's let's tank to you know get to get a true superstar so you know we can compete with Golden State. I'm like let's just let's just have fun here. Um, but yeah, so the season was fun, and then the you know uh, the, the the final series was just was just depressing. I mean, it really seemed like I was at Game One, and that was like one of the most painful Raptors games I've ever seen. You know where they it seemed like they had it and they were going to make it a real series. And then you just knew that when they, when they blew that game, like that was their shot and, and they were going to just get crushed in the series. This is a thing that I tell fans that you mentioned, like I'm watching the Sacramento Kings recently and I'm like, imagine being a fan, having to root for this team that is so poorly managed and hasn't made the playoffs in 10 years. And like you mentioned, a lot of Raptors fans who've been, with the team since the start knows that even with the disappointments in the playoffs like just to have this team winning 50 games every year like this is this is a great time in the franchise's history yeah it's it is great uh and you know the the more the more basketball you get the better obviously you don't want to settle in your mind for you know getting knocked out in the second round every year uh and and struggling through a first round series like you you want them to take the next step but to have a, a good team that's, you know, winning lots of games and is competitive against the top, against the real elite uh, is awesome. And like last year, you know, they, they played Golden State in the regular season pretty much as well as anyone. Uh, two close losses. They could have won both games. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of people will be like, well, they didn't. And that's that's what they do. They don't win it. But I, I just feel like uh, we've been blessed with so much fun in this era. So optimism is high again this season for you with the Raptors? Yeah, I'm optimistic and, and a similar kind of mindset. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, Kawhi's just going to leave. You know, we gave, we gave away our most loyal, you know, our only loyal superstar ever in, uh, in DeRozan. But I, I just feel like it's awesome to have, you know, even if you get a year of Kawhi Leonard, a year to, to, to be at a, a higher level, you know, he gives you a higher ceiling than... That's that's really fun. Hopefully he stays, but uh, I'm just pumped for these next you know number of months. Toronto does latch on to the loyalty thing very heavily in sports. Yeah. <laughs> like it's tr- uh, yeah, it's true. Like more so than other cities, I think. 
Yeah, that's right. Because we still have this inferiority thing, right? Like no one wants to come here like scars from, you know, Kenny Anderson and, you know, the era where players, I think, really did not want to come. Um, I, I don't know. Toronto's an, an awesome city. Like it's such a good, you know, it's a it's a huge market. It's not a small market team. It's It's objectively one of the best cities in the NBA or in North America in general. Uh, so like, you know, I, I agree with what, what Masai was saying at the, the, uh, the opening press conference where he's like, let's get over it. You know, that, that stuff's in the past, but I think it's still in a lot of our minds that people hate us. And so any, anytime anyone's like, I do like it here. Uh, we just latch onto that and get really devoted to them. <laughs> I also think that, you know, you can be, you can be tied to a player like, DeMar DeRozan, but this is definitely not the first time a team has traded a fan favorite to get better, is all. I just don't think Toronto should be reacting no. that way. <laughs> no, no, for sure. I, I felt kind of bad, though, that I was just like, immediately, I was like, this trade is awesome. Like, you know, they got Kawhi Leonard without giving up Siakam or Ananobi. Right. Um, and I, I felt kind of bad because I think it's kind of nice that people have such an emotional reaction like you know the the joke is like oh we're just cheering for laundry like we treat these players as so disposable we don't care about them it's all about just just the team in general um so that people like really felt sad because they they love this guy um i think was pretty was pretty nice so i don't think we should make fun of them too much yeah it was also just a little too a lot happened this summer because the fans had to deal with Dwayne casey getting let go as well and that's yeah it's interesting just the Dwayne uh, I like how Dwayne is very bitter towards Nick Nurse in every interview that I've read <laughs> I feel like he has a it's Nick funny. Nurse voodoo doll I would not be surprised yeah it's so funny because you know he has this reputation as as like classy Dwayne Casey always says the right thing you know refers to the reporters by their first name um so it's to, for him to just keep taking these shots at Nick Nurse is pretty off-brand but it's uh it's fun to read so you know you're into sports and you cover politics what's it been like for you in the past few years to see the two sports and politics really cross over now with nba players obviously being very outspoken against the trump administration and the colin kaepernick story what's been like seeing that unfold and being so up close to all of that happening it's it's been kind of surreal like when um you know, Trump took a shot at Steph Curry on Twitter, you know, and it's like people like, you know, make fun of Steph Curry for being like corny or, you know, for being cocky or whatever. But like, he's a pretty lovable, inoffensive uh, guy. To see the president going after someone like that was just like one of the strangest things I feel like I've I've witnessed covering Trump. Um, and it's been, it's been fascinating. So, you know, the, the NFL story um, and, yeah, the the overlap between that and and campaigns and and national politics, and I think um, you know sports sports has always been political, and it's it's kind of a um, you know guys like Bruce Bruce Arthur, my colleague at the Star, who tweets a lot about politics, even though he's a sports writer. You know the classic thing that they get told on Twitter is like stick to sports, um, and I understand that. Like sometimes when I go to Twitter, I just want you know my favorite Raptors writers to be talking about the Raptors and not musing about like fiscal policy or whatever. But, um, you know, sports, sports are political in so many ways. And so um, I think, you know, you can make a good argument that Trump should not be 
talking the way he's talking about all of this, about the NBA players, about Kaepernick, about the NFL. But um, I think it's kind of, I mean, the, the, the upside is that at least we're not pretending that sports exist in this kind of separate realm where, where politics don't exist. Yeah, and when you have a player like LeBron or a coach like Greg Popovich being outspoken at every chance that they're asked about these things, you know, similar to the whole stick to sports thing that you mentioned, do you think for an athlete that, you know, if these are the things that they believe in, that it's part of their responsibility that they have this public platform to speak out? That's a good question. Um, I don't I don't know if I'd say responsibility um, because I don't think, you know, th- there's so much abuse um, and stress and uh, and even financial challenges sometimes that come with expressing your opinions in a public sphere. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anyone, any citizen that they had to do it. Um, but I don't but I, I, I strongly don't think that the opposite perspective is true, that you know, this is this detracts from, you know, the team, uh, that they should stick to sports, that they should shut up and, and dribble, shut up and play. Um, they're citizens like everyone else. And, you know, they've had, they've, uh, you know, a lot of players that come from, from challenging upbringings and they have a perspective that a lot of fans in their, their cities and states and certainly a lot of members of Congress uh, and the president himself uh, haven't had. And so I think their words are, their words can be very valuable. And I think it's stupid to say that like this, this detracts from winning or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me too, that we obviously hear from the people who have their issues against the administration, but you know, just based on the numbers, there's probably a long list of athletes who support this administration and we just never hear from them. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there is. Who, who has spoken up pro Trump? It's a small number. Uh, I remember for some reason I was thinking of Spencer Hawes, <laughs> who was a who was a pretty open Republican. But uh, yeah, there's not too many. Oh, Andrew Bogut is like a men's rights activist. Uh, but there's not not too many like open Republicans, certainly in the in the NBA. Um, in other sports, uh, they're, they're, like, yeah, I mean, demographically, there's probably some more Republicans in in certain other sports, but. Uh, yeah, I think they're for obvious reasons they're they're quiet. Um, this is such a controversial president. They know that many of their fans are opposed to the president, and so they're reluctant. Uh, just like a lot of anti-Trump people are reluctant. And we also had a Kevin McHale cameo at a Trump rally. I just remember. Oh yeah, that. I forgot. I forgot about that. That was so funny. When people were like, "Is that Kevin?" <laughs> he just he just kind of hanging out in the background. Yeah, that was that was interesting. <laughs> I feel like he knew he was going to be seen. That was a very visible spot where he was. Yeah, he, he he must have he must have known. Just on on this topic, it's been funny for me. Um, Leo Rowden has in the last year or so just started like frequently tweeting uh, anti-Trump hashtags to me. He calls him Bone Spurs Bozo, you know, because he claimed that he couldn't serve Vietnam uh, because he had bone spurs um, and a bunch of other hashtags like that. And it's on like on like pretty it's not just like really basic story it's like a story about you know something trump is doing with the environmental protection agency or like some fiscal policy scandal um leo will chime in and and with a bunch of hashtags so that's that's been fun for me (laughs) you know on the topic of sports and politics um friend and colleague of mine james herbert talked to you earlier this year 
about the prospects of someone like Greg Popovich running for president. What are your thoughts on when people propose these things like Greg Popovich or a celebrity like The Rock should run for president, should get into politics? I, I kind of just feel like the Trump thing has been a lesson that you, you can't laugh people out of the race. You shouldn't laugh when, when anything is proposed, that celebrity is a, an extremely powerful force in American life, um, that there are many advantages that come with that kind of name recognition, you know, when everyone knows you. And so I, I think that's different for someone like The Rock, who I think is much better known than Greg Popovich is uh, with the, the broader public. Um, I think Trump was a unique case in many ways because, you know, he built this brand over decades as, as like the ultimate businessman. And we know that there are a lot of holes in that in that brand that, you know, he was doing a lot of shady stuff that he, he hasn't had the, the net worth that he's claimed. But, you know, true or false, he's had that brand. Other celebrities, um, you know, almost everyone in America uh, is lesser known than Donald Trump was when he launched his campaign. Um, so there, there are hurdles in the way of like, Greg, obviously, uh, Greg Popovich being president or the rocking president. But I'm just I, I just feel like we shouldn't be dismissive that uh, that Trump has proven that we we really don't know and that there's a strong hunger in American life for for outsiders, people who haven't been part of the system. So, you know, it's very unlikely that that uh, pop or the rock will be president but i would never say a flat no yeah is that a good thing though that you you're saying and what you're saying is true that you know america america does latch on to celebrity like it does have an impact but is that a good thing i mean probably not i would say like from my perspective uh, i understand that uh there's a hunger for outsiders because there's very legitimate frustration with the way that insiders have governed um and I think it's understandable people want people want people uh, with different perspectives who haven't been beholden to like, you know, the lobbyist class in Washington. I understand all that. Um, but to, uh, you know, just like I would talk to a lot of Trump voters who'd be like, uh, this was early in the campaign. So in like 2015, I'd be like, well, why do you like him? They'd be like, I loved him on The Apprentice. Uh, and it was kind of like, you know, you have to take every voter's uh, um uh, thoughts as legitimate, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't mock them. But it's kind of like, well, like that's like a heavily edited, heavily scripted, quote unquote reality show that's not very real. Um, and so I don't know if that's objectively a, an excellent basis to base your support for a politician on. But uh, I don't know. That's the way the country is, and I feel like it has been for much longer than than Trump's been around. Yeah. On the topic of stick to sports, I want to talk about your career now. I can't wait for everyone to tell me to just keep this podcast to sports. Um, <laughs> so when you covered the Rob Ford administration, um, you know, obviously, I don't think it needs to recap. A lot of things happened during that time. And I know that you and him got there was a personal thing. Things got personal, too. Um, how did that whole experience inform the way you approach your job now covering the Trump administration? That's a good question. Um, I think it made me more uh, aggressive and more willing to uh, call a lie a lie because, um, you know, when Ford was going after me, he was lying about me. Like he made up this whole story that I was uh, trespassing on his property, that I was standing on cinder blocks, looking over his fence, 
and uh, most horribly that I was taking pictures of his little, of his young children, none of which ever, ever happened at all. And so it was, first of all, like, okay, like that's a lie. The only way to describe that is a lie. And then from there, once the situation was over, it was kind of like, well, if you can describe that as a lie, because it was, why can't we describe other lies as lies? You know, what's the substantive difference between a lie about me and a lie about policy? And so that was part of it. And I think also, like, I felt looking back on the that Ford situation, I just feel like I was so young at the time. Uh, it's kind of like a formative, you know, it's like a cliche, but, you know, you go through a, a tough thing and it teaches you a lot. And so it just made me, uh, in the end, like much less uh, cautious or tentative or shy even when it comes to challenging powerful people. Um, you know, it's like that tested me, you know, it didn't, it didn't kill me. And then it's like, well, you know, a lot of people in power are doing, uh, doing bad things. Uh, they're lying about people, they're lying about policy, um, they're damaging people's lives. And so it just made me um, more willing to, to confront them on all that stuff. How old were you, Daniel, when you were covering I, the administration? Um, it started when I was 25. Uh, let's see, 2010. Yeah, so I started at 20. I was like 20, 25 to 29. Yeah, what was that like for you at that time when those things, you were being accused of all those things, which were false. And Rob Ford later issued a public apology and retraction and all of that. But to just go through that as a, as a reporter, like how did that upend your day-to-day life in any way? It, it was, it was really bad, honestly, like from, from the start, people were saying, you know, you're going to find this funny in like six months. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to find, I, I still don't really find it funny. Like, mm. um, he, I mean, the, the stress was, there, there were a few stressful things. One was that um, he had called the police on me and subjected me to a police investigation. Like I had to go uh, do an interview under oath in one of those little, you know, like rooms from a cop show uh, at the police station in Tobico, you know, with the camera peering down and two detectives, um, you know, he was trying to get me arrested. And so even if it was for something extremely minor, like trespassing, um, if I got, you know, arrested or charged, that could have been really damaging to my career and reputation. Um, and then, you know, the mayor was like trying to convince people that I was a pedophile. Um, and so it's just not, it's not, <laughs> it's not very comical. Um, and, and I still get, you know, I still get people even now being like, you were, oh, like, I, I like your reporting. Like, I remember when you were the guy in Rob Ford's backyard. And it's like, no, like, you know, my whole thing was that I was never in his backyard. That was a lie. But his the, the lies from uh, six years ago now have still stuck. Um, so it was, it was a real lesson in the power of that kind of early narrative. You know, when the politician sets a narrative, um, it might stick for a long time. And so going through that at the time was just really, um, even though I knew I did nothing wrong, it was just, it was uh, really stressful and really challenging. Yeah. And that's the bigger lesson, too, in that when people in power spread these lies like they they exist like once they exist once they're out there people who are misinformed or don't seek out the information they'll believe it yeah no it was a a super important and useful lesson um and even my friends call that ford incident they refer to it as fenskate which was the hashtag when this happened and uh even that like it's pretty innocent i don't i don't care but um 
you know, I was never near Ford's fence. I wasn't looking over the fence. I wasn't touching the fence. Um, I was in a park behind his house. And so the fact that even the people who like me and support me think of this as the fence incident, it's a, it's a testament to, you know, the power of getting your story out early. Uh, even if it's a lie, um, that story might stick for, you know, literally years, um, even though the truth is, is far different. Was there ever a point where during that time you thought, you know, was it, is it worth it to do this job? No, I, I never felt like that because mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was, uh, you know, I, I was being wrongly accused. And so I was just very indignant. Like, this is insane. Like this, you know, this, this man, like it was just surreal. You know, the, the mayor is trying to ruin my career. And so I just felt like I'm just going to fight through this and keep doing my job. And I, I never, I never wanted to, to stop or felt like I should give it up. So covering the current Trump administration now, did you know that when, you know, Trump, and Hillary Clinton were on the campaign trail that this was already going to be your role, regardless of who was elected? No, I mean, no. So I got to DC six months before Trump launched his campaign. So I thought I was going to be covering likely the Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio presidencies. Uh, that would be pretty conventional. Um, and then Trump had his campaign and I, like a lot of people, wrongly thought that he was going to lose. Um and so I was mentally preparing for, you know, a Hillary era in which I would probably not be focusing that intensely on the White House because there'd just be less news from the White House. And there, there are so many American White House reporters that it's hard for a Canadian to be useful in any way. And so this job um, is supposed to involve covering America more broadly than just than just the president. And so I thought, like, OK, Hillary's going to win and I'm going to, like, you know, look for stories around the country and, you know, find interesting stories in Wisconsin and New Hampshire and Texas and whatever. Um, and I'll be traveling and, you know, I'll try to relate what's going on on the ground back to the president. But, um, you know, then Trump won. And the only story that people care cares about is, is Trump. Um, you know, you can go and travel and write something else. But we see from our, our own internal data, the stories that people are clicking are the ones that with, with Trump in the headline. And so, um, you know, I've been in Washington much more than I thought I would be. It's been hugely more centered on the president than I thought it would be, you know, when I thought Hillary was going to win. And so, yeah, the, the Trump's victory just, just changed everything. Yeah, you mentioned that, like a lot of people, you might have been surprised or blindsided by the election results. You know, being in Washington before the election, having talked to Trump voters, did have you thought back because one of the narratives is that you know the media got it wrong they covered it a certain way and they didn't see this coming what are your thoughts on that now that you've had some time to think about it so i i do think that the media um got it wrong i think that's objectively true and i think that um i personally also got it wrong in that i think my stories late in the campaign um conveyed a kind of uh, certainty or at least strong confidence that Hillary was going to win that um, obviously was not warranted. And so, I, you know, I wasn't like, this is stupid, Trump can't win. But I just think in some of the some of the sentences, some of the tone I chose was, was overly dismissive of a possibility of, of Trump's victory. Um, so I think that, that those criticisms are valid and it was embarrassing to me personally, as well as I think to a lot of other journalists. I think the the incorrect part of the narrative is that 
journalists didn't go out to Trump country and talk to Trump voters, and then that was the problem. I, I think that that was not a problem. Like I talked to, you know, tons of Trump voters. I think most other campaign reporters talked to tons of Trump voters. But the thing is that when you're on the ground, you can't tell the difference between like, uh, you know, a 55 to 45 percent race one way or the other. Like it's just impossible. Um, you just can't see that in your interviews or in yard signs or whatever. Um, and you know, Hillary won the national popular vote by by two points. Um, you just can't see that in from interviews. So I think what the real error was was in interpreting the data, interpreting the polls, which you need to look at to some extent. But I think people saw Hillary up by a few points in the polls and were like, "Okay, this is over." When they they didn't and and I didn't sufficiently account for. Um, many state polls that showed a tighter race or Trump leading in key states, um, the possibility of statistical error. You know, we have a margin of error in polls. And so I think, you know, people just took the polls and and were confident about them when we should have been more humble uh, and more, uh, we should have hedged much more in the way we did our coverage. Yeah. And the idea, because what you do at the Toronto Star and, you know, you do this, I think, real time on Twitter too, is tracking Trump's false claims you know the purpose of the idea you know is is obvious but when did that start become a thing that you or the star together decided that it was something to keep track of so it started in uh september 2016 so it's about two months to go in the election he was just being so dishonest like unprecedentedly by all accounts dishonest um and people say, you know, all politicians lie. Of course they do. And of course, Obama lied and Bill Clinton lied and other Democrats lie. Um, the thing with Trump is that the frequency is so extreme. So Obama might have told, you know, he might have had a, a, a big lie or two about the effects of Obamacare, what was going to happen. With Trump, it's like it, it sometimes it's 20 things in a day or, or 30 things in a single campaign rally where he's lying about nothing. He's exaggerating every number. He's making up fake stories about supposed phone calls he's had. You know, he just, it's an avalanche of, of little stuff and, and some big stuff. And so I thought, like, this needs to be treated as a story in itself. This is not some sideshow to the campaign that Trump is lying pretty much incessantly. This is a central story of the campaign. We need to bring some focus to this. Um, and so I started making kind of an informal list that I would just do a screenshot of and tweet out um, on my account. And then uh, we started doing it on the Star website. And then I thought I was done with it uh, with like four days to go with the election. I thought this was my last one. Um, he's going to lose. And then he won. And one of my, I was, I was at the Hillary Clinton so-called victory party, uh, her campaign night party in New York. And one of my first thoughts when uh, the states were being called for Trump was like, oh, my God, I got to keep fact checking this guy now. And so I took a break for the, uh, the transition period and then started again for his inauguration. And you must... I think I've seen you mention this or show some screenshots online. You must get a lot of feedback and emails like your inbox must be filled. Yeah, I get a lot of uh, a lot of hate mail, um, some some very nice emails as well. People thanking me for for doing the fact checking in particular. But um, yeah, there's a lot of hate mail. People people get very angry with the fact checking um, for a variety of reasons that range from like somewhat reasonable to just people just are out of their minds. Like, you know, just they'll email like really nasty, like uh, racist, homophobic, uh, anti-Semitic, just garbage. Um, 
filled with like they'll fill with insults of Justin Trudeau. They'll be like, why don't you? Uh, some people call him Crime Sinister, which I, it took me a while to figure out that was a play on Prime Minister. Like, why don't you? Uh, why don't you cover uh, Crime Sinister Turdo? Uh, instead of like some foreign politician, you like in a bunch of slurs. And so I've learned how to uh, to block people on Microsoft Outlook, which I didn't know was possible until the Trump era. You can like send people's emails to go automatically to the trash. And so I have my regular like nasty emailers who I just have sent to the delete folder automatically. And that's actually like improved my life <laughs> in a pretty in a pretty real way. Yeah, is that stuff easy for you to manage? Or like you just look at it as that's just part of the job. Yeah, m- mostly I do. Honestly, the, the the only time that I I really get uh, the only time that I get upset is when they actually have a good point. Like when I have screwed up and people are like, "You, you know, you loser. Uh, you know, you forgot. Like you omitted this important this important relevant fact." And I'm like, "Damn! Like I actually, you know, I did. Or like I need to correct that story." Um, and then I get mad at myself when they're just like yelling at me because they don't want to hear the facts about Trump or they think that fact checking the president is biased somehow. That doesn't bother me at all. And I, I think it's more like I, I tweet a lot of those hate hate mail emails because I think they're funny. Um, so I, I just try to see the, the comedy and the silliness in them. Yeah. You know, the the world, especially reporting on these important matters, feels like it's becoming a more scary place for journalists. Does that ever worry you personally or has have people close to you ever said that maybe you should go cover something else, do something different? People um, people on Twitter have been like, you know, I'm concerned, like be safe out there. Sometimes they respond that way when I post the, the hate mail. Um, I've, I've never really been concerned. I, I honestly find, uh, you know, when I've dealt with Trump voters, they've been very uh, polite to me, even if they're like, oh, the media is biased. And I think there's some like white male privilege there. I know that some um, African-American reporters, some Muslim reporters in particular, um, reporters who wear the hijab, um, have not had the same experience with Trump voters. And I understand that. For me, though, like I can kind of, you know, blend in at a Trump rally and people are not bad. I understand that there are some uh, angry people out there uh, who are not, you know, who who are willing to hurt reporters. But I've just never felt like there's a personal threat to me. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully maybe there is one out there, but I, I just, I don't feel it personally at the moment. And what do you do to de-stress when you're not doing your job, covering this job that seems so exhausting from afar? Yeah, it's exhausting. Um, yeah, so honestly, I mean, the main thing for me is is basketball. Um you know, someone, someone on Twitter, like one of the people who was expressing concern about my mental health was like, I'm just so glad the the Raptors are coming back. So we have like a few hours, uh, you know, a few hours a night or a few times a week that, uh, where you can just like take your mind off it. So yeah, like the Raptors are my biggest hobby. Um, I play on a, a co-ed uh, softball team in Virginia. Um, and DC the weather is, is so warm that it goes until like November. Um, so that's, that's like six months plus of the year playing softball. I love karaoke. I'm a big karaoke guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I listen to like, you know, music and podcasts and stuff. So yeah, like it is a pretty all consuming job, but, uh, it's not like I'm doing this, you know, literally 24 seven. What is your go-to karaoke song? 
It's uh, it's Holiday Inn by Chimmy. You know the song. It's like I wish I had someone pretty, in the uh, studio to play this, play the <laughs> instrumental right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it, it's pretty vulgar, uh, arguably misogynistic, but uh, it's also pretty funny. And like my female friends enjoy doing the call and response chorus. Uh, what you doing? Uh, so you know, it's a it's a pretty shameful go to song, but I like it. I stand by it. Yeah. Dan, last, last question for you, Daniel. You know, you've we talked about you covering Rob Ford, covering Donald Trump. To get into this, to get into politics, reporting as a journalist, there has to be, you know, some responsibility or thirst or whatever you call it to really, you know, provide the truth to, to the world. Um, where did that desire or response the feel the need to feel that responsibility come from for you that's tough I, I think i've always been kind of like you know i've had a very low tolerance for 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 bs like for dishonesty um and when i was coming up in university and when i was younger like um i, I thought i might want to be in like the political world and so like um first i like I was like a supporter of uh, like the left wing. Like I volunteered when I was really young for an NDP campaign. And then I kind of w- reacted the other way. Um, and I worked at a, a right wing think tank in Washington. I interned at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and like through these experiences, I was just kind of like, I don't want to be on any of these teams. Like all, you know, all these sides are like hypocritical in some ways. They're liars in some ways. Um, and journalism is kind of a way that like, you can call BS on all sides um, and just feel like you're being true to yourself and, and true to the truth rather than just like picking a team and, and backing them no matter what. And so I feel like I've just always had this kind of instinct to like not be part of a team or at least since I was in my like, I don't know, early twenties, um, you know, to not be part of a team and just, uh, just kind of like bring more, more kind of honesty to the world. Perfect. Daniel, really appreciate you taking the time and We'll continue following your work, and I hope the Raptors are in the finals this season. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it.